Y'all ready to be history? It's started. Welcome. Hi. 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 Hello, everyone. To the Pro Audio Suite. Thanks to Rode Microphones. These guys are professional. They're motivated. Introducing Robert Marshall from Source Elements and Someone Audio Post, Chicago. Darren Robbo Robertson from Voodoo Radio Imaging, Sydney. Tech to the VO Stars. George the Tech Whitam from LA. And me, Andrew Peters. Voiceover talent and home studio guy. This is part two of our chat with Bill Drescher, the recording legend. The next uh, question I've got for you, Bill, is um, working in another country. I think the next stop for you outside of America was the UK. Is that correct? Um, no, I think I'd actually worked in Canada um, a little before that, um, up in Vancouver. But um, in the mid-'80s, yeah, uh, I went to London to do the Jewel Shear project for EMI. And um, that's where I brought Jeff over to play guitar on. And uh, I think Jeff was over there about a month, and I was over there for about two months total, something like that. And uh, brought it back and mixed it at the Village. Yeah, that was an interesting project. It was fun to be at AIR. It was super exciting to meet George Martin. And you just happened to bump into him in the hallways in the studio, you know, and or he'd come in in the morning before we'd start and, you know, and just chit-chat away, you know. <laughs> that was just such a thrill. What sort of stuff did he used to talk about? Did he get all techie and talk about, you know, recording the Beatles and stuff? Um, you know, I, I didn't want to, like, you know, sort of pry or whatever. Um, he was trying to get me to, to bring projects down to Montserrat, to his studio down there. And he was kept trying to get me to go down there. And, and it just... He, it wouldn't work for me. It was just too much money to go down there. Um, but occasionally I, I'd, you know, try and pick his brain about Beatles stuff. And um, he had told me that his favorite uh, song, um, when I asked him, was uh, Strawberry Fields. And um, his favorite Beatle album, he said, was uh, Abbey Road, actually. But uh, yeah, it was just it was just so exciting to be in the same room with the guy, let alone in the same control room where he'd done the Beatles, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It's funny you talk about Montserrat. I saw um a little it well, I saw an interview with Hugh Padgham the other day and he was talking about working down there with the police mm. um doing uh, synchronicity. Mm-hmm. And how difficult that session was, in fact, to the point where he rang his manager and said, get, get me out of here. I've been here 10 days. We've got nothing that, uh, on tape at all that's worth even listening to. Wow. And I just want to get out. Wow. Um, but obviously it was resolved and they stayed. But, uh, yeah, it was very tense. It was very unpleasant. Wow. Have you been through sessions where the band are basically fighting each other? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the 12 Dreams of Dr. Sardonica spirit record um, it was a total band breakup, and by the last third of the record or quarter of the record, Randy California really sort of did everything and finished the whole thing. And um, I think, like I told you before, In Excess, that was a, a bit of a struggle between Michael and the band when I worked with them. And when I worked with the Allman Brothers... Um, Greg Allman and Dickie Betts were always, <laughs> you know, going at it. And so, yeah, that happens, you know, and uh, unfortunately. The in excess session, was that the um, uh, movie Yeah, it was uh, 
uh, Keep um, the Peace for uh, Beverly Hills Cop 3. Yeah. Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, yeah. Keith Forsey produced it. I co-produced and engineered it. And Keith had to go on and do um, Simple Minds in Ireland. And he asked me if I could do the record with him, Simple Minds. And I had already committed to Richard Marks, so I, I couldn't bail. But um, so then... Keith and I actually worked up the track here in L.A. And then uh, we met the band in Mexico City just for a meet and greet thing. Then I hooked up with the band in uh, Miami and put the band and Michael on there. Then I flew to Ireland and mixed it with Keith. Then I flew back here to L.A. and finished off the mix at Larrabee in Hollywood then I flew to Arizona and played it for the band. <laughs> oh wow. my god! It was it was a long trip for one song, oh, crap. and it was like yeah. drowned it out in the movie by like you know gunshots and sirens and bombs and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As they do. So what was the yeah, issue? I'm, I'm curious. Um, what was the issue between Michael and the band? You know, I, I don't really know to tell you the truth because I had only just met the band like a few days before in Mexico City. And then hooked up with them in uh, Miami and put the band on there. And I don't think Michael was there when I put the band on. And then Michael came in the next day or so and did his vocals. And nobody from the band showed up at all. And um, one of those days, it was actually Michael's birthday. And um, nobody was there. And I, I didn't quite get why or whatever but um but michael was with his his girlfriend at the time helena christensen i believe but um after he finished the vocals i you know comped him and whatever and and uh and took a taxi out to their place out in south beach and you know played it for him and uh he loved it and thought it was great and so it was it was a real experience and he's just he was such a sweet guy you know it was it's just such a shame that he had to go. You know, that was yeah. that was really sad. Totally. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of it was odd. Yeah. Apart from anything else, yeah. I think. Yeah. And they talk about Australian yep. bands with no longer have a singer. You also worked with the Divinals. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Um, what record was that? Um, I don't know to tell you the truth. <laughs> I think it's probably on Discogs, but. Um, uh, Keith Forsey uh, produced it, and I engineered it. And we went to the record plant in Sausalito, and the Divinals manager somehow messed up the accommodations. And Keith and I stayed in a different place every night for a whole week. And finally, <laughs> Keith had a, he had a great line, and I still use it to this day. He said, "He goes, don't unpack your suitcase." I've come too far in life to live like this. We're going home. (laughs) (laughs) And so then we came back to LA and the band came back to LA and we did it at track record in North Hollywood. And, and uh, I just, I don't remember it actually being completed. I I don't know. It was, it, it sort of ended on some kind of weird terms too, but I was just the engineer. So I, I, I wasn't privy to all of it. Underworld would that be the album? Could be, could be. I, I'd, I'd have to hear the songs, actually, to tell you. Songs this. like Sex Will Keep Us Together, I'm Jealous, For A Good Time, Open Windows, Bleed, Underworld. Oh. Speaking of lovely people, though, Chrissy was certainly one of those as well. 
like my. Well, she could be prickly though. She could. Yeah, she, that was just she could persona, be, I think. She and I got along great, and she was she was a good spirit. You know, she was cool. She was cool. I always loved the way they came up with the name for that band, which Chrissy I heard Chrissy talk about a couple of times. But she um she was walking down. They were starting the band, and they couldn't come up with a name. And she was walking down one of the the main streets in Melbourne doing some shopping and. She was mucking around with a mate of hers. They were looking at all this fashion in the windows and they were going, that's divinal. Oh, that's divinal. Oh, that's divinal. And that's where it came from. Wow, that's cool. Is that right? Yeah, wow. absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah, very cool. There's a, another um, Australian act that, I don't know if it's on my discography or not, but it, uh, John Farnham, I'd done a song with him that yep. um, Richard Marks produced. He was another one. Ah, do you remember the song? Because um, no. those two are mates, aren't they, Richard and, and John? No, I don't remember the song. <laughs> <laughs> you must remember the voice, though. It's oh, one of yeah. those voices that you don't forget very easily. Oh, what a silky, beautiful voice. You know, I mean, yeah. just incredible. And yeah. Richard and I actually did a song also with Barbara Streisand around the same time. And I remember as soon as she started singing the song, he and I looked at each other and both of our jaws just sort of dropped open. We went, wow, that's the voice, you know? And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You don't forget a voice like that. No, no, no. And it's kind of weird when you're in a room and it's happening, you know, you're sort of like, yeah, wow, that's the voice I've been hearing for years and yeah. that's the person the voice comes from. Yeah. Yeah, you Isn't get it those, funny though with those, sorry, go. I was going to say, you, the, you get those goosebump moments, you know, like just hearing the voice. You know? Yeah. And that's the, isn't that the funny thing? It's like you, you, you're in a room like either recording or, or watching a voice like that being recorded and you're looking around for what they're lip syncing to because you're thinking no one can sing like that, surely, <laughs> and they are. It's just crazy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So some, who are the standout you know, musicians that you've worked with, either vocalists or instrumentalists? Oh, man, I've, I've worked with so many great musicians, but... Um, Oh God! Uh, my favorite drummer right now is Greg Bissonette. He's is just phenomenal, and the nicest guy, hardworking, and he's a great uh, reader of you know drum music. He's great at it. Lee Scalar is a great bass player. Um, Chris Broderick is a great heavy metal guitar player. Um, Michael Landau, Michael Thompson, great guitar players. Um, I don't know, just tons of them over the years, you know. I mean, uh, Don Ellis was a phenomenal guy. And, um, God, I don't know, just <laughs> a lot. So you also, oh, isn't it always the way? I decide not to work in the booth. I'm sitting out here in the control room and we start recording and guess who turns up? The gardener. The gardeners. <laughs> <laughs> Right outside the door. Uh, <laughs> uh, look out. We have to do a bit of isotope on this one, I think. But with all the um, other studios, because you ended up working, because we've talked about Japan before, but you ended up living there as well for a short time. Is that correct? Um, I wouldn't say living. I mean, I think every time I'd been to either J Japan or Taiwan or China, it would always be for like just two or three weeks at a time. Um, and most of that was just work, 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 work. So you don't really get to see a lot of the country or whatever. And two or three weeks, if you want to call it living, you can. You know? But mainly it was just a work trip. What was it like working, and we've touched on it, but what was it like working in a place like Japan? Do you find the, you know, the studios really good? And yeah. 
Well, that comes yeah, to- they had. Um, I'd mainly worked in one mix room at JVC. Um, it was a, a large format SSL E series console, um, very well maintained. Never had a problem with it. The monitors weren't really my cup of tea, but um, they were doable. They were, you know, fine. They were okay. So, what's your favorite console? A Neve or an SSL? Well, I'd have to say, um, boy, I, I, in general, for tracking and recording, I'd say a vintage Neve if it's in really good condition. I was never a big fan of the V series. I didn't think they sounded that great. As far as mixing before Pro Tools came along, um, the SSL uh, was my favorite because I, I never liked a moving fader system. And I, the SSLs still sound great to me. And there's a lot of them around, luckily. Well, it was interesting, and I'm sure you've worked on one of these, but uh, it was Hugh Padgham's accident uh, that cr- created the, you know, the Phil Collins drum sound because of the talkback where they actually rewired the talkback so they could feed it into a channel and record it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, quite often, um, you know, along with the ambient, well, actually all the time, uh, and I've been doing it for a long time, is that since the early 90s, you put a, a bunch of talkback mics out into a, a recording room so that you can actually communicate like in between takes with the players and stuff, right? And I found out early on that all those talkback mics actually sounded really pretty good, right? And so yeah. I'd start recording all of those too. You know? And I still do to this day. I mean, I'll, I'll put out a, a trashy SM57, like, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 feet in front of the drums, you know, and just point it right at them, you know, and, and, uh, bring it up in the mix occasionally, especially for drum fills and just, you know, uh, 1176, you know. Compress the hell Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, get it up yeah. there and then get it out, you know. <laughs> That's that SSL talkback plug-in sound. Exactly. You know, just like slamming drums, like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they, they yeah. made that plug-in for that. Yeah, yeah. But I heard the story of that, and it was an, it was an accident. It was during um, recording of Peter Gabriel's record, wow. and Phil Collins came in um, to play drums on the record, and he was sort of in there, and they just wanted to talk to him. And, and I think it was Hugh Padgham hit the talkback mm-hmm. just as he belted the shit out of the, the kit, wow. and it was so loud in the control room, everyone's gone, holy crap. That sounds great. <laughs> Did you, you know, um, can we Everyone's can we record that? And it's like, yeah, and the texts were there, and it's like, can we record that? And it's like, no, we can't because it's not. You can't patch the talk back into the desk. <laughs> so he Hugh got the technician and said, "Is there a way of actually getting this to patch into the desk itself?" That's cool. Oh, and that so he got up the schematics and worked. It works overnight, and he managed to do it, and that's that's where it came from, from Phil Collins. That's cool. That, that, that's cool. I, I just installed one of the little baby SSL6 uh-huh. mixers, Yep, and it has a talkback, dedicated talkback, and it has a mode that when you turn on that compressor, it gives you that sound, and it does allow you to track it. You know, they've routed it so you can send it where you want. <laughs> wow. So that's yeah. like an homage yeah. back to, to that. Yeah. That's pretty yeah, cool, yeah. actually. Now I think about it. That's cool. Because the, the story was that uh, Peter Gabriel with Phil Collins said, I don't want any symbols. Wow. 
So all the drum tracks, had, there was never a symbol on that, that album at all. I think it was the Melted Face one from memory. You know, I, I, I did a few of those kinds of records in the 80s too. You know, it was like no symbols. And I don't know why everybody sort of got into that sort of mode, but um, I just, I heard one that I did uh, from that time period. I heard about a month ago and I realized at that point, I went, oh my God, we didn't put any symbols on there, you know? <laughs> and now I look, I look at it and I go, oh, maybe I should have put symbols on, you know. <laughs> yeah. Governor Lane, do remix. Civil remix. Yeah. <laughs> so if you, if, you get a, if you get a drummer to come in and you say no symbols, I, I guarantee they're going to have an issue because they'll be, they'll be reaching to hit a symbol at some point. They, they have to ride something. Yeah. Actually, with, um, with uh, Greg Bissonette, this project, and this is the second time we've done it, we did it once on the last record we did with Mari Hamada, that the drum parts are so complicated that sometimes he can only play like the kit without the cymbals, or he can only play like the bass drum with, instead, without the rest of the kit. So on this last um, uh, project, one of the songs we did um, for this one section, we had to do the whole kit, but no cymbals. And then we went back and overdubbed the cymbals. Wow. Well, wow. here's a little piece of drum like history. When did the bottoms of the toms come off, and then when did they go back on? Go back on. In the seventies, they went off, and they went back on by the eighties. <laughs> that's that's How's too that many decades drugs? ago for me to even think about. <laughs> I, so, so I I've, I do remember Hal Blaine. Or sorry, go ahead. I do remember Hal Blaine coming in. Uh, for sessions, and uh, all of a sudden he showed up with like towels over the toms, you know. And I thought, wow, that's pretty weird. You're going for a beetle thing, I guess, you know. And but uh, I don't think he stayed with that too long. But so, so what was the uh, you you said you didn't like flying faders? No, for automation. No, I I, I hated them. I really hated it. It was. Is it is it just like the system itself, or just the whole idea? I mean, now every DAW is basically flying faders. By, yeah, you know, well, by nature. Yeah, I mean, it, it the faders move, but I like in Pro Tools, I never grab the faders. I I, I write in the automation. You, you draw yeah, it in okay. exactly, um, and I, I can do that much quicker and more precise than trying to catch a fader, like you know, and and that was the thing with like moving faders to me. Um, my moves would have to be so precision and intricate that it just wasn't precise enough. And it was like, you know, hmm. trying to grab a, a baseball flying through the air or something. I don't know. It was when SSL <laughs> showed up and, you know, you could put your moves in and then put it to trim and then just update all your moves yep. by a little bit or whatever. It, it, was, it seemed so much more uh, user-friendly I, to me. I, I use a lot of trim in Pro Tools, actually. Like, that's... Very yeah yeah you know it's great absolutely like a little bit more a little bit less from from wherever you are yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely so so do you do, do you do you like initially kind of finding the mix with faders and then tweaking it with the, like the parametric method you know but when you're first just kind of pushing stuff around and trying to find a center do you do you prefer faders at some point in the process um, yeah I mean I'll I'll just sort of you know you know, on the mix page, I'll just sort of, you know, set some basic levels or whatever with faders, but um, uh, I, I don't stay there for very long at all. I just start automating. 
Do you do you use a controller at all, like a fader controller? No, is it just- no. I I tried fader port years ago, and I tried it once. I thought this is too much like flying faders. <laughs> I just got rid of it. You know, <laughs> PTSD. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So 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 I guess the, the the other question I had was like, and sort of related is, what was the point where you were just like, I'm going all in the box, like, um. You know, I think, I think it's actually Jeff Silverman's the one that got me into Pro Tools. And that was probably, I think, around 97, something like that. And, but I was still working um, like on the Pro Tools version 201. Exactly. Or maybe, maybe version three, but no. I think it was three, actually. Yeah. But um, no, because, because version, version three came. Actually, it was because it came out right when I got out of college, which was ninety six. Was two or three? It's like ninety six, ninety seven. Yeah, I think I yeah. think it was three. But um, I was still working in yeah. uh, on large format SSL consoles, and um, mm-hmm. but then around right around two thousand and one, um, the business really sort of changed, and more people didn't want to spend a lot of money um, sitting in a really expensive mix room. So I found myself, you know, starting to mix some Pro Tools more, and it just seemed like the the easiest path and most friendly for me to just write in the automation. So, so version four of Pro Tools probably was where it really, yeah, shortly after that, because that was that, that that was all those new bus TDM systems. I right. assume you were using right. right? Yeah. yeah, I had, I had a I had a couple of those like those horrible expansion chassis with those. Oh God! Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> the pins that cable that would go into the void, but had a million pins that could all bend. And Trevan <laughs> tape backup. Oh my God! It was oh geez, like data. Yeah, oh, such it was either exabyte. Yep. Oh God. <laughs> did you did you use like uh, what was that? Um, Mezzo to archive your projects? Did you use anything like that? No. Didn't everybody? I remember the Travans. Whether it was Mezzo or Retrospect was was like the two most popular. Probably. Mezzo was the big one out time. here. Everyone had Mezzo. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I can't, it could have been Mezzo. I I don't don't remember. I mean, it's hilarious. So long ago. Like all those projects in the world are probably like lost forever because <laughs> they're yeah. stuck on Mezzo that no one will be able to. I've had I've had to unarchive. I've had to um, recall a couple songs that I did like. In oh maybe like oh two oh three oh four somewhere around there, and I have to drag out my old computer, old keyboard, old yeah. drives, all this old stuff, and then you know somehow get it to to Hope work. Spin, yeah, mm, <laughs> transfer yeah. it to something that I can put in a new system. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, mm-hmm. nightmare! I'll, I'll tell you my most tragic one. I I did a my actually probably the best album I did, and then. I burned it all to DVDs, mm. two sets. Mm. And 10 years later, 15 years later, I don't know. You put the DVD in, can't be read. Ugh. You put it in, you put the backup DVD in, can't be read. Mm. There's, it's data rot, literally, is, wow. is what they call it. Wow. And it's just like, yeah, right. lost. I didn't think that happened. Wow, that's wow. interesting. Yeah. It does. And it was funny. There's a lot of things back in the day, you know, about CDs and burning and, and um and they would say like this is good for a hundred years. It's like, wow. How do you know that? <laughs> yeah, mean, really. Yeah, apparently not. Because I've just been there and I just come back. Well, yeah. the discs themselves are so fragile, though. Really, let's be honest. 
they scratch so easily yeah. in the, and that yeah. film on the, the silver side scratches off so easily. Scratches off on the top, yeah. That's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. But I've got um, yeah. I, I've actually been through a bit of that the last couple of weeks because I've been grabbing all my old dats out of, the, out of storage mm-hmm. and because I kind of I was worried about, you know, them degrading. Mm. Some of them are, yeah. shit, some of them go back to the mid-90s and I thought, shit, surely these aren't going to work. And I don't have a, a rack DVD player anymore, a DAT player. The only DAT player I have is a little portable Sony thing, like an old Walkman yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're great. I, they sound like the day I recorded them. I've wow. archived them all off onto hard drive now. Dads, but, um, dads can also mess up though, but yeah, they're... Uh, I, I did that a couple of years ago. I, tr- I just transferred everything. I even actually bought a cassette 8-track again because the one I had, like the motor one, I found one on eBay. Mm. And I just transferred everything to files. Someday if I had a recorder, it's like a VCR, miniaturized. I, you know, I, it has yeah. a spinning head. I got, yeah. I got out my... The DAT machine is that, yeah. yeah. I got out my old yeah. F1 uh, a couple Ooh. months ago, with the Betamax, wow. yeah, wow, trying to fourteen bit, yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying to get some stuff off of that, and I got some stuff, but others that you know, on Umatic or Betamax that you used, Betamax, those Betamax, okay, yeah, yeah. But well, some- interestingly, I mean, interestingly, Andrew's Commodore sixty four still pulling a pretty good sound as well. <laughs> <laughs> actually, funny you should say that though, not the Commodore sixty four, but I, I do ha- actually have about a foot from me a Betamax. Video player wow. that still works oh, wow. beautifully. Wow. Yeah. Is there yeah. anything to play on it though? <laughs> yeah, all, the t- all my early tapes so, are on beta yeah, right. <laughs> So, um, so, so, Bill, how about how about what odd DAWs have you run into? Like, did you ever have to work with like a Studer Diaxis or a Prodigy? Um, Fairlight, any of those? Like, like Fairlight. Oh, in Jesus. the music world, I think Diaxis and Prodigy. Who is Prodigy? I forget that. I don't know. Yeah, I've I've been quite lucky that um, I haven't had to work on anything but Pro Tools. Um, although Chris Broderick, um, the guitar player that we use, he's he was in Megadeth for years and years. He runs, uh-huh. and I can't remember the name, but he runs a different type of system. But he just sends me the files, and I can just throw them into Pro Tools, mm-hmm. and it's all good. But um, yeah, it's I've just been on Pro Tools since. Since Jeff forced me to. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, Jeff. Did you ever, yeah, Robert, have you ever come across one called Studio Frame? Yeah, Waveframe, um, I thought it was. Waveframe. Wave yeah, may, yeah wave maybe frame, it was yeah. Waveframe. I thought it was Studio Frame. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Waveframe. Yeah, it could have been. Anyway, yeah, I used that for a while. It was eight tracks only from memory. Um, and that bounced around for a while over here. I'll tell you another trick, though, with uh, finding old bits of material on uh, reel-to-reel tape. So you quickly in the microwave. throw it into the microwave, you zap it in the microwave for 30 seconds and straight onto the reel-to-reel player and dub it off. And that's your last you get run. one run. That's it. Yeah, that's do you know, your last do you know what works even better? Like, like it's the oven, but the the, dehumidi- the the things that you use to like make banana chips oh, and the dehumidifier. A food dehydrator. The dehydrators are perfect because they usually make them so that they stack. Yep. And you can like have different shelves of, of all your dehydrated food. So they're perfect for a quarter inch pancake. They really are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you just dehydrate because, because if not what happens, it's so depressing. If you've ever seen it happen, you put that old tape in there and it goes through the capstan and it just peels off in two separate pieces. It completely delaminates. Wow. And that was yep. like the last playback ever. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like there was a guy for years at like, um, at Capitol here in in Hollywood, 
And um, his his main gig was that he was the guy who baked the tapes, you know. And yeah. So have you got any wow. um have you got any treasures buried away that you've kept over the years, Bill? When talking about archived stuff. <laughs> um, archive stuff. Um, probably, but it, the, the one thing, but I think it's actually out on the internet and it has been for quite a while. When I first started at Sound City, before Joe Godfrey bought it, and w- when it was still Vox Studios, uh, Charles Manson recorded there. And um, so he, uh, there were several tapes, I think it was one inch eight track that his stuff was on. And so after his, you know, carryings on and his murders and um, the district attorney came in with an entourage of people to um, listen to the tapes and, and make copies of it so that they could analyze it and use it in their uh, prosecution, whatever. Um, so we ran tie lines to another studio and, and copied the whole thing ourselves. Right? <laughs> so we had that for quite a while, but, but then I, nice. and I, and I, but I think somebody else had gotten copies or something or, or already had it. Um, Cause I think it's, it's out over the internet, but um, that was one that I remember. Yeah. Yeah. My, my treasured one is I've got a, um, I've got a desk mix of U2's, Zoo TV concert from Adelaide hmm. because we at Triple M in, when I was working in radio at Triple M we ran a competition um, where and the it was a national competition and the winner was beamed live onto the stage during the Zoo TV tour and um, the winner was in Adelaide so it was their Adelaide concert that we put to air and we had <laughs> we had this feed coming back from Adelaide to us so we could put it live to air so wow. <laughs> basically got a mix of the uh, the whole concert on that which. Ironically, the reason I pulled out the DAT player. It was the the reason I pulled out the DAT player the other day because I didn't want to lose it. Yeah, it's funny the stuff you come across that you'd love to put out there, but you're not allowed to. Exactly. Well, it's interesting. I I actually had, and it came up in an interview with Hugh Padgham. This this Hugh Padgham interview is getting a few plugs as well, but he was talking about Neil Finn turning up at his place after he'd done the Split Ends records and they're broken up and. Neil was talking to him about recording, which became the first Crowded House record. And he said he played a few demos, a demo to me, a cassette, and he said there was nothing on there that, you know, was much good really. So I didn't, I sort of declined the invitation to um, to produce the first Crowded House wow. record. But interestingly, I know that demo tape because I, I had it and I, I don't know where the hell it's gone. Oh. And it had, and I do know it did, because ha- he said it had none of the hits on it. It certainly didn't have... Don't dream it's over, huh. but it did have a really rough version of "Now We're Getting Somewhere" hmm. um, and a couple of other strange little songs that popped up. There was one in particular that I was half just half a song uh, called "Hoedown," which I thought was really, really good. How did you get but, your um, hands on that? Because I used to know them, and uh, so Neil sent it to me and said, "Can you tell me what you think of the songs?" Wow. I went, "Okay, sure." But "Now We're Getting Somewhere" had a different bridge. It was all kind of yeah, it was all over the joint. Mm, right. But, you know. I got a, um, a demo tape of uh, the Yes stuff, and um, the owner of A Lonely Heart was on the demo tape and a bunch oh, of other songs. It's, wow. It's a cassette, and somewhere it's it's out in my shop somewhere. <laughs> That's so funny. My cousin, when I was a kid, he had a Emu Emulator 2, and it would load samples on a floppy, mm-hmm. right? 
and somebody had that whole song broken up into samples. Wow, weird. So you could just pop it in there and just kind of do an arrangement yourself, huh. you know, playing back the samples. We thought that was just super wow, that's... freaking cool in 1989 or 88, <laughs> whatever that was. Absolutely. Yeah, I wonder where they got that from. I don't know. I don't know if Yes, like, officially released huh. it. I have no idea. Wow. Was, it, was it the parts or was it just the mix? I mean, someone could have just loaded it in. It was like in. chopped up mix. Yeah, so it someone could have really loaded it in. Pieces of the mix. Yeah, it was yeah. just like you hit a cue and it go... And you hit another key. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that was iconic. I think Trevor Horn worked on a Fairlight from memory. Is that correct? Could be, yeah. Yeah. Fairlight was sold out of the Village Recorder years ago. They kind of had the West Coast office in the Village building. The actual Fairlight doll now is given away free as a part of... Resolve, Resolve, which yeah. is also free, <laughs> which is this unbelievable video editing platform. Wow. Yep. So like when you get Resolve, which is called DaVinci Resolve, which is owned by Blackmagic, you get Fairlight as part of it. Oh, God. Is that kind of bizarre or what? Really? Wow. It's it's not quite... It's it's interesting because it's... I, I haven't checked it out in about a year or two. I'm not sure about a year, though. But at first, it was not the full Fairlight that was on the w- Windows side. Like right. it really wasn't, it was like the basic idea, but um, yeah, because that is really light. actually a great workstation <laughs> for editing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I still have a D88, Tascam DA88 tape deck with all the tapes wow. in a big plastic bin in my parents' basement. So <laughs> not that there's any gold on that. <laughs> but, Bill, you know. Bill, something I still am running is a, uh, I've got a Mac 7100 with three new verbs running. Wow. On it, wow. Which are which are like the Lexicon three hundreds. Wow. We're gonna have to make cool. a museum. <laughs> Actually, you already have. <laughs> you live in one. Yes. I think the the oldest Mac I have I haven't powered it up in decades, but maybe a ninety six hundred, something like that. Ninety six hundred was I think that was like mid nineties or probably like nine two thousand, ninety eight to two thousand yeah. somewhere in there. But yeah. Yeah. all the rest are gone. We, we also have a f- few questions from, uh, we put out something on Facebook saying that we were talking to you and anybody had a question. And I have one here, um, which was sent to me by a mate, actually. And it's it, he wants to know how you mic up your drums. Well, um, the specific microphones on each drum. Yeah. Um, for kick drum, I usually prefer an ATM 25, snare top and bottom, SM57s. Hi-hat, <clears throat> Neumann KM84, Toms, I used to use AKG 452s, but I've been using uh, 421s for quite a while now. Overheads, uh, 414s, uh, room ambience, left-right, uh, U87s, ambient center, SM57, and that's that's usually the, the gist of it, yeah. So no, no uh, kick drum mic on the on the beater. No, just the ATM twenty five inside the drum, gotcha. and then because mm-hmm. um, well, I I like not even an outside kick mic either. No, just uh-uh. in there. And that's I, it. Because um, yeah. reason being is that I usually I always trigger samples for kick and snare um, on gotcha, everything, gotcha. and if I if I want a, um, a different kick drum sound from the live kick drum sound. Um, 
I've gotten into using transient shaper, which can, you know, make it sound really tight and sharp or make it sound really long and boomy. Gotcha. Wow. You've really embraced modern technology. Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, not Sorry. that you wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, you've been in this doing this a long time, but, you know, going from the analog world to you've really taken advantage of the tools. Because, you know, I think there might be a lot of folks out there that have had those years in and they're kind of stuck in their mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. And you're you're like clearly evolving and and embracing the tools, you know, as much as possible. Well, well, how much were you trying to do that before with a compressor, trying to you know, uh, you know, manipulate the transient or like you know, transient shaper is probably in its core a compressor limiter type of thing. I, I'm guessing. Right? Yeah, and and, and, and sort of, you know, yeah. an expander gate, you know, is part of it, kind right. of. But um, you know, even even back before, like when I was still on SSLs. You know, it, there was still like a, a a lot of compression to make things smack hard uh, was was usually what we'd go for. You know, it it wasn't that often that you'd you'd want something that was more uh, long and boomy. Uh, you, you were looking for really as much smack as you could get out of things because most of the records I'd done were so many tracks. You know, you you just needed so much punch. For everything to be heard through the giant wall of stuff, you know. And some of the consoles, like at the Enterprise, one of the SSLs was 110 inputs. Another one that I worked on a lot was uh, 80. Um, and even at that, you had to use large faders and small faders, you know. So a lot of stuff. So I was always looking for punch. Did you ever, did you ever work in any uh, studios in Chicago? Um, no, I never did. Never did. Closest I came to that was probably Philadelphia, I guess. Yeah. George, that's your hometown, right? Yeah, that's my hometown. That's that's where I had that very short stint interning at Sigma Sound <laughs> <laughs> for, for like four Wait, months. Uh-huh. But I was there long enough to meet David wow. Bowie. That was pretty cool. nice. We had yeah, worked nice. at, um, I think it was Phil and Joe Niccolo's studio. I can't remember the name of it, but yeah, that was close. Cool. Did a band called Bricklin um, and... Interesting story. We started at uh, the power station in New York. Um, and they were kind of, the song we did was kind of like a Beatle song with like a lot of vocals and harmony. And of course, when we sent it to uh, the film company, you know, you give them the, the music, you give them the vocals and maybe a solo instrument, different stems. And um, so the, the film comes out and um, I'm, Listen, I'm watching the film, waiting for the song, and I didn't know where it was in the in the movie. And it gets like to the end of the song or end of the movie, and I'm not hearing it. I'm going, oh man, they dumped it, right? All of a sudden, there it is, and it sounds great. It gets through the intro of the song, and they made it an instrumental. They took all the vocals out. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, the band and I were not happy, but what are you going to do? No. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, speaking of vocals, I've got another listener question for you, Uh, and it is the most most user-friendly de-esser that you've come across that's not a standard door de-esser. Oh, God. Well, what's your, just tell what's your, what's your go-to de, what's your go-to de-esser? There's a good one. Well, you know, actually... Occasionally, I might use a de-esser, um, and it's you know maybe the uh, the DigiDesign one, but more often than not, I usually um, I automate the de-essing so that I'll 
I'll beat down the um, the frequent the DSing frequency that uh, so I can pick the frequency and the amount I want rather than just setting it on a a threshold or whatever. Actually, I was going to mention before we got off to the drums thing because uh, Robbo and I were talking earlier, and Robbo <laughs> used Sennheiser four one six or forty one sixes as overheads for drums. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A long time ago, back in my radio days when I was young and naive. Um, and and partly because it was all I had, you know, we, we weren't a we weren't set up to record, you know, bands. We were set up to record voices. Mm-hmm. So you'd scrounge around the station and find whatever you could. But yeah, I would always throw up one, or if I could get them two, mm-hmm. um, and sort of make stereo overheads cool. over the cool. top of um, over the top of the drum kit. Yeah. Hey, whatever works, you know. Yeah. 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 If it sounds good, yeah. it is good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Now, talk about sounding good and uh, drums. That 70s drum sound was really kind of soft. Mm-hmm. You know, the snares didn't snap. Mm-hmm. Thuddy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was thuddy. Yeah, it was 200 yeah. hertz. Yeah. So, how did that change? Do you remember the change when all of a sudden it was like heavy reverb, gating, smack kind of uh, drum sound? Yeah, I think it, it sort of started in. Um, Early 80s, mid 80s, something like that, you know, maybe with digital reverbs and then, you know, miking up the room and getting the ambience. And um, so it's it just sort of evolved. And nowadays, I, I mean, I think it's good to to mic up the room and whether you use it or not. I mean, even if you're doing like a, a very intimate sounding song, you know, you don't have to use it. But if you decide you want it, it's there. You know, what do you prefer? Well, most of the stuff I do is is pretty hard rock, um, so I, I always like to have the ambient tracks. But that's not to say that I use all the ambient tracks on every song all the way. Sometimes I might not. You know, it just depends upon the song and the way the mix is. You know, building up. Trigger the toms as 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 well. No, or is uh-uh, it- I don't. Yeah, that's. That's just a little too much for me. Kicks and kicks and snares are about all, all I trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. I'll paste in extra cymbal uh, crashes if the crashes don't kill me or whatever. But uh, usually the toms sound great the way they are to me, and, and especially when I you know ride up the uh, ambient center mic that's totally trashed out, and uh, you know so it, it makes a bigger sound. Then then get that out of there. Yeah. I've been uh, been mucking around with making some um, just some loops and stuff for the the radio imaging production that I do, and I recently downloaded Reason just because I hadn't used it for uh, decades mm-hmm. since since it sort of that little trial version used to come with Pro Tools, mm-hmm. and I thought I'd download it, and I I rediscovered the um the old eight oh eight kick sound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that really, that boomy, bottom-endy right. sort of yeah, yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. And, oh, man, I've been having so much fun with it. It's like everything old is new again. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Here's one for you. If you are only, you could only have one vocal mic and one vocal preamp and one vocal compressor, <laughs> what would they be? <laughs> Put them under pressure. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> um in general, and one take. In, in general, and one take. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Who would the singer? Barbara Streisand. Yeah. In general, uh, I think my my go to vocal mic would probably be a, a AKG four fourteen uh, into a ten seventy three, and then a Neve thirty three six oh nine compressor. That being said, 
um, there is, uh, uh, at audio rents, there's a Neumann M49 that sounds like no other microphone, including any other M49. And it's their uh, Neumann 03, and it's the only mic that Barbara Streisand will sing on. And it is a phenomenal sounding mic. But as a as a general microphone, I would I would use an AKG four fourteen. Which four fourteen? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I've 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 used a bunch of them, and I haven't been disappointed. You know. So the only mic that mm. Barbara Streisand will sing on. So what do they got to ship it around the country, or does she just always go to the, back to the one studio? Uh, no, they'll they'll ship it to wherever. Wow. Yeah. In fact, Rick and I were doing a project, and we're in uh, Miami, and we took it with us to Miami, actually. Wow, there you go. I wouldn't have thought they'd let that out. No, that's why I was thinking. That's why I was asking. It's like, wow, they let it out of the building? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) They got your credit card. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, true. That's right. Yeah, that's that's right. right. (laughs) Even that probably wouldn't cover it. I mean, mean, audio rents is just renting equipment. Do they have a studio or they're just... They're just rentals. I, I, well, I don't even know if they're still around now, but at the time it was just uh, rentals, yeah. Well, it'd be interesting if they're not around and who's got that microphone. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, so many things have changed in the business over over the decades and, you know, studios have come and gone. Actually, you know. with that siren in the background, maybe Robert's got it and someone's <laughs> found it. <laughs> yes. I'm going to, I'm going to throw you one, one, one last question that occurs to me that I, I'd be interested to get your answer to. And if you can't, I completely understand. But in, in, in terms of the process of recording over the years that you've done it from back in the summer of 69 until now, is there an old school way of doing things that, well, when I say old school, that is now called old school, but that you still believe in and you still to this day follow, even though it may be looked as as old school? No, I, there isn't really. But but the one thing that, um, that I, I think was a, a big watershed moment for me and that I still do, and that's notching out low mid frequencies in uh toms and a kick drum and like 400 and 300 hertz in that area yeah like you know depending upon the the drum and the equalizer or sure. whatever it could be 250 to 700 even somewhere you know you just have to sweep it okay. and find out the offensive frequency yeah, find the ring yeah, yeah and and you get that out of there and it is a world of difference and totally. and when yeah, i wow. When I learned that one back in the very early days, you know, I, I just went, that's freaking great. That's a keeper. And I still yeah, yeah. do that, you know. I, I actually have a question. So back in the day, you're tracking, you're probably processing as you track. So you're, you know, hitting, you know, <laughs> tracking drums through compressors and onto tape, I, I imagine. And then things modernize, converters get better. Do you still track through uh, a lot of analog front end, or is it kind of a mic pre's to converters kind of um, workflow? Like, where, where, what's your feeling if, on um, processing and even taking it one step further, like the whole UA thing? Like, let's process it through a plugin. Yeah, I, I don't That's do any um, processing through plugins. Usually, if I'm if I'm recording into Pro Tools um, and whatever, whether it's vocals or guitars or a band or whatever, I'll I'll use as many compressors as are available to me. Not yeah. tracking. Yeah, I, I won't like like yeah, I won't I won't hit them yeah. hard, but uh, I will use them. And then of course, 
you know, in the mix, a, a lot of different compression chains. Do you, do you find you're using a lot of tape emulation? No, not really. No. Um, I've been asked over the years, like, well, or I've been told maybe, oh, analog's the best and blah, 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 blah. And, or, oh, digital's the best and that, that, you know, and, and this and that. And to me, it's really the singer in the song. And it, as long as you get sure. a, a great performance and record it well and mix it well, then it stands up. And I mean, I, I like recording and mixing in Pro Tools. So, um, you know, that's my preferred you know, workspace, but um, they're all still good. If it sounds good, it is good, as we said earlier. I like, I like your attitude. Like it just, (laughs) just don't be caught up in the tools and the process. Be caught up in the song and the writing and the performance. And I remember I heard, uh, I did this band called Rain People on uh, Columbia and I heard their demos they did on some four track cassette machine and they sounded great. And it was because, the band was so talented and the vocals and harmonies were so good. And it all came across on a little four track demo cassette thing, you know? Yeah. Wow. So what's your favorite experience? Is it working in the box or do you sort of hark back and have fond memories of sitting at a gigantic Neve desk? <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I like both of it, but um, definitely being in a studio for as many years as I've done it is, yeah, I still get a thrill out of it. You know, it's it's a great experience, and um, you know, at least Galar from our sessions the other last week, where he he posted a bunch of stuff, and and uh, you know, it's it's just great to be in a studio, especially since everything since COVID nineteen came around, it, it's been on a lockdown, and um, it's it's just great to be in a big room again. Uh, one thing I will throw at you, though, is um, as you're a fan of the C414, um, I don't know whether you've heard of the new company, and we were talking about this before we got on, actually. Um, there's a company, Austrian Audio, that came out of the guys from AKG when they shut the factory in Vienna, mm. and they're building microphones cool. now. Cool. It would be really interesting if you uh, got your hands on one and yeah. tried one and see yeah. what you think, because um, very, very similar to the old... 414s, the old EBs, but just really super mm-hmm, clean mm-hmm. and nice. Excellent. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to do that. The 818. <laughs> yeah. Not 414. Really Give them my disagree. address if they <laughs> want to send me one, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you should get one to try for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be yeah. Good. Definitely. Yeah. They're very nice. Has anybody got any other questions? No. I think I'm questioned out. <laughs> Two hours has just about covered me up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was great. Tip of the iceberg there. I'm sure there's plenty of other great stories that we missed out on. But thank you, Bill, for joining us. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Well, that was fun. Is it over? The Pro Audio Suite recorded using Rode NTG5s and Source Connect, edited by Andrew Peters and mixed by Voodoo Radio Imaging with tech support from George the Tech Whittem. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and join in the conversation on our Facebook group. To leave a comment, suggest a topic, or just say g'day, drop us a note at our website, theproaudiosuite.com.